Welcome to the Calvary Lake Ozark Message Podcast. Wherever you are tuning in from today, we hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. If you'd like more information about Calvary Lake Ozark, visit calvarylakeozark.com. Good morning. Um, I walked in this morning and I walked up to Andy. Didn't even get a good morning. I just said, hey, I need you to cut a song. I'm going to need a little bit more time. And he said, which song? I said, I don't know. (laughs) Whatever one you want to cut. He thought I had something against one of the songs. Um, So as Andy said, we went away and went to a pastor's conference. And the theme was standing firm in Jesus. And we come back and we turn on the news. And here's an opportunity for us to stand firm in Jesus. So unless you've been living under a rock, you understand what's going on in Russia and Ukraine and Social media is full of uh, thoughts, opinions, as Facebook just does that. It's just kind of a hobby almost, just to want to read through the crazy that can be posted. And, uh, and I know in times like this, you know, a lot of people are probably thinking, well, what's the pastor think about all this? Is this the end times? Are we, are we nearing the end time? What does this mean? What's Russia? What's Ukraine? Da, 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 da. And I thought, well, let's just take a little bit of time and lean into that. Uh, I'll try not to get my political opinion, but I have that, about everything that is going on. But one of the things that they even talked about, because as you're going through First Thessalonians, that's what we were walking through in uh, the pastor's conference, it talks about the rapture. It talks about end times. And it says, are we, one of the speakers talked about, are we focusing on the signs and the characters, are we focusing on the Savior? Because if we're looking at global crisis, let it be wars and rumors of wars, you know, Matthew 24, we'll talk about that verse here in a little bit as we're nearing that in our preaching. So we'll give good context for that. Um, If we as a church, if we as individuals following Jesus are looking at global crisis as the sign, we're not focusing on the right. That means we've taken our eyes off of Jesus. I don't think the Lord needs somebody else to do his bidding for him. We are told in his word that when it is time, he'll let us know. And however he does that, I don't think any of us are going to be like, you know what, I missed that call. Missed your text there, Lord. I I was busy. I think all of us will fully know, and, and I won't need a messenger to tell me the Lord has returned. I think he can take care of himself. It's kind of the Lord, you know, seems fitting. And so what does this mean about Russia and Ukraine and, and what is my stance and all this? Um, one of the things that we saw frequently posted is, you know, the idea of, oh, the world is just falling apart. Is God not sovereign? The world is not falling apart. I think the world is falling into place, that nothing is happening outside of God's control. And so if, if this is what's happening in our world, I don't think God just woke up and thought, Putin didn't call me to see if this was okay to do. He's not shocked. We were shocked. Turned on the news, wow, this is happening. He's not shocked. 
just like in our lives. He's not shocked with the things that happen. And, and so, you, so you hear that, and then you also hear, oh, uh, this is Ezekiel 38, and people are, you know, the places, the characters of Ezekiel 38, they're, they're, they're taking their role like it's a play, and all the actors and characters of this are finding their, you know, uh, what do they say that? I, I wasn't a theater kid, like locations, or you got to find your spot, or whatever that was called. But getting ready for this to start, you had to find your area. Uh, and, and gently, I think that is a misinterpretation if you try to find Russia or any other modern country, I guess, except Israel in the Old Testament, where uh, there, I can understand but the idea of two words that sound alike, so that must mean that's Russia. I, I don't think that's there. And so, again, instead of focusing on the events that are happening, keep our eyes on Christ. And so we have been praying for the nation, specifically the church that is in Ukraine, and I would encourage you to pray for those in Russia as well. Because just because their leader is orchestrating and doing this does not mean that that sums up the general population of that country, nor does our leader sum up the idea of the general population of our country. Do you like to be known by our leader and say, oh, well, you're just like your leader? <laughs> well, I'll be your huckleberry on that one. I'm definitely <laughs> maybe in a little bit of opposition to our leader. But we're still called to pray for our leaders. That is scriptural. That is a command. And so we will do that. Yeah, the leaders that we like and the leaders that maybe are not even ours. Because scripture says that there's no authority that is given if it isn't given by God. That will be in the sermon. Give me a moment. And so I would, I would encourage you to be praying for the church in Ukraine, be praying for those in Russia. Uh, Russia's already a fairly poverty, poor nation. <laughs> like, wow, the guy that's supposed to be talking is communicating real good today. An average income there is twelve dollars to $16,000 a year. And the only political statement that I'll make is I don't think sanctions and crippling an economy to the oppressed is going to change the hearts of an oppressor. And so I do lift up the Russian people, knowing that many do not agree with what their leader is doing. We can resonate together in that. But my wife is a really good researcher. She reads a lot and she finds stuff and she sends me, I'm just going to, little soapbox, she sends me more things than I can read. I'll come home, hey, did you read that article? No, I didn't. <laughs> Why not? Because it was 47 pages, and I read, <laughs> I read at a third grade level. She'll be like, oh, let's read this, and like, we'll be reading it together, and then she's already done, and I'm still trying to get through the title. But there's an American who is serving at the Kiev, which is the capital there in the Ukraine, their theological seminary. Uh, it's an American. He's been there for more than two decades, and he was interviewed, and they're saying, hey, how uh, some... Some churches, some missionaries have left, some are staying, where are you at? And he said, I'm taking my cues from my students. They want to be here to study, and that gives me great hope. Even in the midst of this kind of uncertainty, this kind of ominous threats, they're trying to keep their focus on Jesus. And that encourages me to keep my focus on Jesus. They really are a living cloud of witnesses. And so... Little, little bit of history here on the Ukraine, a little, I didn't know this, I, this is something I learned. 
Ukraine is the main missionary sending country for Eastern Europe and Central Asia. The church is very strong. And as far as Europe is concerned, the Ukrainian church is perhaps the strongest and is doing the most for education, training, and sending out workers. Are we in a physical battle or are we in a spiritual war? And you're going to take the country that's the strongest in Europe that's sending missionaries. Are we shocked that maybe they come under persecution and affliction? And that's a professor went on to say, talking about the missionary efforts of the Ukraine. He goes, it's not from the West to the rest. I love that. It's not about the West reaching the rest. It's from all peoples to all peoples. That's the only way the Great Commission is going to be completed. As I told in Morning Huddle, I said, this is their time. And but what we can't do is think, oh, that church there is different than us. We're one church, just like we're one body. And if I walk up with a hammer and slug you in the big toe, your whole body is going to be in pain. And when one part of our body is under persecution and affliction and under turmoil and distress, all are. And so instead of wondering, is this the end times? Yes, it is. The moment Jesus ascended back to heaven and said, I'm coming back soon, and the early church, all the New Testament writers had an imminent view of his return, yes, it is the end times. From that day moving forward. We even had in our uh, teaching down in Florida, one of the pastors said, I know exactly when the Lord's going to return. 2 a.m. Somewhere around the world, it'll be 2 a.m. when he returns. <laughs> We need to stay the course and keep our eyes focused on Jesus. And it is our opportunity. We might be thinking, well, what can we do? All we can do is pray for him. No, that's the greatest thing that we can do is to pray for him, that the church in this area would stand strong in the midst of whatever is going on in their country and be the body of Christ and be a light to the world because their testimony is ringing true. And I pray that when it's our turn, and it's our time to stand up and be the church, that our testimony would ring out the same. So before I jump into the sermon, I thought if we could pray for our brothers and sisters and, and those around that they'd be able to witness to in Ukraine, in Russia, I'd like to do this Honduras style. So we're getting all kinds of uh, nations involved in this. We're in America praying like the Hondurans for two other countries. It's going to be fun. If you don't know what I mean by Honduran style, when we went, we would pray together and all the Hondurans will pray at once, out loud. It's at first very off-taking because everybody's talking at once. And didn't you learn in Sunday school, you don't talk when somebody else is talking? And, but I think the Lord's big enough that if all of us pray out loud, it's as if he can hear every single voice. And so I'm going to open us in prayer. And just as the Lord is leading you, pray out loud. You can get real voluminous. You can stay a soft whisper. That's between you and the Lord. But for us to pray together to the Lord and, and the opportunity that we have to intercede on behalf of our brothers and sisters, what an amazing opportunity that we have. So if you pray with me. Father, we love you. We trust you. We just thank you, Lord, for another opportunity 
to come to you, to seek you, to intercede on behalf of, of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. Lord, I could not even understand and fathom what they're going through, but to hear reports of their faith standing firm in you, it is amazing. Give me that kind of faith, Lord. Let it be an encouragement to me to press into who you are and what you've done for us and the mission that you have for each and every one of us. I do lift up those even in Russia that would look at their leader, look at their country and be in rebellion and disagreement with what is going on, knowing that they are called for different, they are called for better than this. Lord, reveal yourself through all of it but we know you are completely in control, you are sovereign. And even in the things that we don't understand and why they happen, we surrender to you. Give us understanding. Even when we struggle in our unbelief, help me believe, Lord. And as you are leading the Ukrainian church, I pray that you would lead our church to be bold and stand firm for you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 22. Have, uh, yeah, there's a sermon after that. I'm sorry. Matthew chapter 22. We are still in the middle of a sermon series that we're talking about denial. And again, we're not talking about those outside of the church that are living in denial. We're talking about us living inside the church and how at times we can fall for the same thing, that we could live in denial. And so we are picking up in verse 15. So Jesus already had this really long conversation, used three parables, speaking to the religious leaders. And now it's kind of their turn. They said, all right, let us respond. We got, we got some questions of our own. And so the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, Jesus, in his words. So here's the motive. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. I just want to be like Jesus. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you come from. I don't care how much you tithe. We're going to preach the word as the word should be preached. And so I used to tell my students, because a few of them, uh, I had students whose dad was my boss. And I said, I don't care that your dad's my boss. I'm still going to hit you upside the head with the gospel. And I'm going to treat you like any other student. I had one student one time be like, I'll tell my dad. <laughs> like, that means you, you think you could talk after this. That's cute. <laughs> you don't care about anyone's appearance, opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. So tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to test? You hypocrites, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. 
And the same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So to the second, the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, you are a moron. I mean, you are wrong. Sorry. <laughs> Got caught up in the original Greek there. You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when, they, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So you got these three groups that we're seeing, <clears throat> Pharisees, Sadducees. Pharisees were more of a conservative group. The Sadducees were more liberal. We have no understanding of what that would be to have two separating parties like that in our culture. The Pharisees would hold very firm to the word. They would even take it so much further that even how they interpret it was pretty much on same level with the word of God. Um, they would hold very closely to the commandments, all that. And then the Sadducees, very liberal. They didn't believe uh, in the resurrection, nothing supernatural. Pretty much what you see is what you get. They also didn't hold to any scripture other than the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books that Moses wrote. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, right? And so we have these differing parties, and they didn't get along. The Pharisees, by, you know, broad brush, generally speaking, were poor, not of great money, and that wasn't their concern. The temp not even really the working in the temple, but the word, the Old Testament scriptures and their interpretation, that was their focus. Uh, the Sadducees were more the elite class, uh, had a little bit more sway and pull within the religious community, right? And then you have a group that's mentioned here called the Herodians. And so we know that Rome was in control of everything, and they put authority in over Israel, and that's where we get a guy named Herod. And that's even where we have uh, Pilate. And we'll talk about that when we get to the crucifixion of Jesus. And so Herod, and if you remember a few months back, we had the whole family tree, pretty much crazy, you know, uh, wife sleeping with brothers, uh, niece dancing for her uncles. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Crazy family. Uh, I think he killed a multiple of his wives, a couple of his kids. But the Jews that followed under the Roman authority to follow Herod, they would have their allegiance to Herod. Those were the Herodians, that they followed this pretty much madman of a leader. And again, our culture would know nothing about madman leading nations. And so you see this political and religious authority, and you know it's trouble when they all want to work together against Jesus. Hey, let's set aside our differences. Why? Because we want to kill that man. Oh, okay, we're with you. The things that they would normally argue and, and fight about, we're going to lay those down because the greater risk of this guy named Jesus. 
And so they walk up to Jesus. It's the Pharisees. They're up first, right? You know, um, in the wonderful movie that I love of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the very first one, the original, the best one. If you remember the ending scene with Shredder, the turtles are fighting Shredder and they're taking their turns at the start, which I never made sense. Four against one, you should have won. The rat trained you, come on, right? But they take their turns, it's one at a time. Let me have my shot at them and then it's the next turtle and the next turtle and the Pharisees are doing the same thing. The Pharisees are up first to battle with Jesus. And then obviously we know we've read that the Sadducees are on deck, they're up next. So the Pharisees walk up, they're talking with Jesus, and I love how they start this. They look at him and say, teacher, which would have been an appropriate title, but not fully understanding who Jesus was. He was not merely a teacher, but they say, teacher, you, we know, we know this, that you are true and that and you teach the way of God truthfully, and you don't care about anyone's opinion, you don't, you're not swayed by appearances. If they truly meant that, the next thing out of their mouths should have been, and we repent, and we need to realign our lives, and we have made this whole thing about something that we wanted and not about you. And we're in the same danger. That we could absolutely say that. Oh, yes. Jesus is Lord, saved us by his grace, but then we make this whole thing of, of Christianity and our faith about something that it's not. See, this is just flattery. That's not true, honest praise. And it, it, you might be thinking, well, what's the difference between flattery and praise? Usually, for me, it's when does it come into the conversation? When somebody says, oh, Nick, that was a wonderful sermon, but there it is. We got to butter them up a little bit. We got to soften it up because we're coming in swinging. So they're flattering. They're manipulating Jesus where this probably worked for them with other people. They'd flatter them and like, oh, thanks. Downloaded it last night off, you know, the websites for sermons and, you know, and just play into his ego and his pride. But again, he doesn't care about anyone's opinion or swayed by their appearances. So why are they giving him their opinion? Trying to butter him up. This is this flattery, this insincere praise from an insincere motive. And Jesus sees right through it. It says, aware of their malice. He knows what they're doing. They don't want to have an honest, upfront conversation. They're not looking to, hey, how could we be better as Pharisees and leading the general population and what it means to serve and honor God with our lives. They know, Jesus knows, they want to trip him up with his words because if we can get him to say something stupid, we can kill him. And I love that you guys don't have that kind of heart, that if the guy up here says something stupid, you're going to kill him. And I thank you for that. I wouldn't have made it past one week. And so they come to Jesus in this flattery. He understands their malice, this intention, desire to do evil. And so they're trying to catch him. It's like a catch-22. Think, ah, because whichever way he sides up on this question, he is going to be in trouble. So they look at him and they say, okay, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful? And we're not talking about Roman law. He didn't have to question that. He's talking about Jewish law. As a Jewish person living under the law of God, should we pay taxes to Caesar? If you say yes, 
the Jews are going to hate you because they're under oppression from Rome and from Caesar. And if you say no, Rome is going to kill you. It's not like this where you go to the IRS and maybe they'll throw you in jail. You don't pay taxes to Caesar, he'll just kill you. So which way is Jesus going to line up on this? Because it's a catch-22. He's going to tick somebody off in this. And he, they're going to trip him up and he's going to give opportunity because if he says, yes, pay taxes, they're going to side with the Jews. So let's kill him. This guy's sympathizing with Rome and wants to support Rome. Let's absolutely kill him. And there'd probably be a crowd that would say, yeah, let's do it. And if they get Jesus to say, no, don't pay taxes, then they're going to side with Rome and say, hey, this schmuck over here doesn't want to pay taxes. Let's kill him. And they will. So he's in a catch-22. But he's the Lord, and he sees it coming. He's not taken by surprise. And so Jesus <clears throat> is being tested. They ask him, you know, they, they flatter him up. And, and why does he need to be tested? Again, they're not truly trying to understand what's going on. We really need to understand that. They don't care about what Jesus is going to say. They just want to find a reason to kill him. We have to understand that because everything in this last week, that's what it's about. We just want to kill him and we want to try to have a just cause for it. And so they ask, should we pay taxes? And Jesus, okay, you hypocrites, why are you going to test me? He says, show me the coin for the tax. And a lot of times we breeze over that. But Jesus just said a massive thing right here. Like if you, if you know what burns are or if you get roasted by someone or they have this like really good comeback and you're just like, oh, that hurt. You know, that was good. Jesus just burned the Pharisees horribly right there. And a lot of times we miss because again, we have to understand the culture, especially the Pharisees and how they lived and some of their uh, made up laws that they put under. And so was Jesus that broke that he didn't have one denarius? I mean, it's only a day's wage. You know, so still a decentish amount of money. He's already made coins appear in a fish's mouth. Could he not just like, you know, pull one out of his pocket like David Copperfield, do a little hocus pocus? Why did he ask the Pharisees for the coin? Is he not powerful enough to make, I mean, he created everything, all things by him and for him created. Could he not make one coin appear? Why did he ask for the coin? So if you have your Bible, flip to Exodus 20, which are the, if you remember last week, 10 commandments, Exodus 20, 10 commandments. It'll be on the test, I promise you. Every time in Bible college, I think they just threw that one out there just to, you know, we were in a totally different class, but they would always ask us. So Exodus 20, it's the 10 commandments. And we know that the Pharisees loved money. And the love of money is the root of all evil, not money the love of money. And so we already know that they have a little bit going against them for it. But if you look at the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, start in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A better translation because of the English word of jealous has a negative connotation. God is zealous. He will not share his glory with anyone. So when he's saying, uh, 
the first commandment saying there's no other gods before me, there shouldn't even be any other gods in existence. It's not like I'm number one and everybody else is two, three, four, five. No, I'm number one and that's the list. And if you try to bring anything else in there, you're dead in your sin. And so in Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, they have these commands not to create anything carved, any other likeness. The Pharisees would understand that to mean you can't even carry money around with you because that's honoring another king and you're not honoring God. And they would put that oppression on other people so you couldn't even carry certain cash or you'd be breaking their interpretation of the law. And so for Jesus to say, should we pay taxes or not? Show me a coin. And I wonder if Jesus just looked at him because I know you got one on you. And I know you yell at everybody else that if they carry coins, that that is them breaking this commandment, that your hypocrisy is jingling in your pocket as you walk up and down the streets. We can all hear it, but that's how deaf, that's how blind, that's how dumb you really are. You are this stubborn people that you can't even hear your own hypocrisy. So yeah, hand me a coin, reach into your pocket, hand me that carved image that you're not supposed to have, and then we're gonna talk. So they hand him a denarius, and he says, whose likeness and whose image is on it? And it's pretty simple, it's Caesar's. Then give it to him. Then give it to Caesar. If, if his name's on it, give it to him. That's why I write my name on everything. Keep my kids away from it. There was a massive uh, dispute would be a, a, a word we could use this Christmas over eggnog. Because that was my eggnog. And these little heathens drank it all. And so we started writing names. We bought our own eggnog, write our name on it. And if your name's not on it, that's not yours. And so it's pretty simple. We understand that. We watch Toy Story, and he puts the name on his toys because they're his. So render to Caesar the things that are his. And each ruler would have done this. Every time there was, and the, word, the term Caesar obviously comes from Julius Caesar, and everybody used that as a sense of uh, an emperor king. That's the title there. Every Caesar that would come into place, they would always mint new money. Why do I want money with the guy that I killed to take over? I don't want to look at his ugly face. I don't care if it's on a small little coin. I want my face on the coin. I want my name on the coin. Wouldn't that be so frustrating? Every time you got a new president, we need new money. No comment. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like it. And that's what they would do. Because they wanted to be honored. They were the, the, the emperor, the Caesars of this time. They weren't just merely ruling authorities. They were viewed as God. They were viewed as God. That in, in their culture and within that, that's how the, the general population viewed them. And so, yes, we're going to stamp God's image, being Caesar, on that coin. And so each minted his own coins and they put his own image on them. But render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is his. And so where is God's image? Where is his inscription? So again, clear back to Genesis chapter 1. It's pretty much the first pages of the Bible. Verse 26, it says, Then God said, Let us 
make man in our image after our likeness. Does God have a multiple personality disorder? Or is there three persons looking at themselves saying, let's create man in our image? So even from the very first page, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit involved in creation. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter 1, and you still see the same three persons of the Trinity involved in our salvation as well. And so they said, let's make man in our image after our likeness. We're going to give them dominion. And so verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. Not male, female. Not male, female. One not greater than the other. That male and female together are created in the image of God. That there is absolutely full equality between man and woman. And to say anything different, you're going to find yourself on the opposite side of Scripture. Now, do we have different roles? Absolutely. Thank the Lord. You do not want me trying to raise up little kids. I was scared the first time I held one of them. Ashley, full on, full into mom mode. It was awesome, like she'd been a mom a hundred times before. I held my first kid. I thought, I'm going to break this thing. And like, I don't know where the batteries go. I don't know what's coming out at the backside. I had, the very first diaper I changed was his very first diaper. He's crying. I'm crying. We're in this together. It was different roles. Absolutely. Absolutely different roles. But there's equality in that. And that is all in the image and likeness of God. That's his design. So we're not making that up. We're not creating that doctrine. We're merely recognizing what God has already done. And then what about inscription? Where has God put his word on us? Lots of verses, but I like Psalm 40. So if you have your Bible, Psalm 40. Verse 8 says... I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Another way you could say it is your law is written on my heart. It's one of the defenses I use when we talk about the existence of God is the existence of a moral law. That I do believe that there is an absolute moral law that is written on the heart of every person. Now, do some people deny that and go against that law? Well, yes. Do you speed? Yes, well, you're a lawbreaker, and they should throw you in jail. So yes, even though there is a law written on our hearts, there are people that break those laws. And so that doesn't negate just because there's evil in the world that there is a law written. Some people are breaking that law, but there is a moral law. And so if there's a moral law, there has to be a moral law giver. And even to say, okay, how can that be a law? There has to be some sense of right and wrong, and it can't be based on us because... Well, at least in my house, I'm always right and everybody else is wrong, but that's not always the case. I know you're probably shocked by that. My wife's just over there sitting so quietly. I love that, self-control. But we know there is an absolute standard in God that we don't have to make up and wonder what is right and wrong. We're merely recognizing what God says is right and wrong, and we align our lives to that not trying to align God's law to fit what we 
one. And so his image, his likeness, his inscription is written on us. So if the coins have Caesar's name and image on them and we are to render to him those things, what are we to give to God? You are not your own. Merely by creation, let alone salvation, because we've been bought with a price. So give your life. Give Your life is not your own. It is God's. Render to God's what is God's. His name, his image is upon you. And one of the worst evils that we could do is to take what is rightfully God's and give to another king and give to another kingdom. Just like taking somebody's toys. My name's on that. Don't give that away. That's my toy. Don't give that toy away. The worst thing that we could do is render to Caesar what was never meant to be Caesar's. And sometimes we're in a danger that we'll try to render to God what he's never asked for either. But that's a whole nother sermon. But render means to restore or return in relation to the source. Caesar created the coin, so give it back to him and they're his. Let him, like Scrooge McDuck, just swim in his little coins. But we are God's. And so when we render our lives back to him, we're rendering it back to the source. We're not doing a new thing. It's not like God was like, oh, you were never mine. No, you were always mine. I mean, you, you could even slip the, uh, the, uh, the idea of tithing out of that. Everything that I own and have is the Lord's. So when he's asking for 10%, he's not asking for me just to hand over something that is mine. I'm to render it back to him. And then Paul has to write and says, I have to be cheerful about it. And that's hard at times, but I think God knows best and he wants a cheerful giver. But restore return in relation to its source. And so as we're talking about nations and governments, even our own, because a lot of times we want to skip right to the render to God what is God's, but he did say render to Caesar what is Caesar's. He did address the idea of us as Christians having a dual citizenship that we need to honor the government in which we live. And so if you have your Bibles, going to skip it around here, uh, different spots. Uh, go to Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. This is Paul saying, for because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities are ministers of God. There's three ministries that God has ordained to rule over people, the church, the family, and the government. That the government is a ministry of God ordained by him. And these officials are ministers of God. And so attending to this very thing. So pay your taxes. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. But I don't like the guy that lives in the White House. Okay. But the position of president over our country is a position to be honored and revered. And that's not a political statement. That's a theological statement that we honor and revere the authorities that God has ordained and placed over us. Well, why would God pick him? The Lord's ways are not our ways and the Lord's thoughts are not our thoughts. Again, we can have opinions about it, but is God not in control? Even Peter, so we've listened to Jesus. We heard Paul. What about Peter? Maybe we'll get to Mary. Sing a little song. First Peter chapter two 
verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Not for your sake. Honor the Lord for the Lord's sake. Be subject to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live in such a way that you obey the law of the land and its foolishness to the world. It's almost a testimony to him. You get to put him to silence. So live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So am I saying that we have to have an equal response between God and the government? Absolutely no. Absolutely no. I just wish some Christians had at least the same zeal that they do for their constitutional rights as they would for the commands of God. Let that sink in, that we can get more passionate about the right to bear arms than the command to go and make disciples. That's when we have lost our first love and we've turned away and made this about something else. And so Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. And I love this because at the same time, he can shut down the Pharisees. Sorry, you guys are the Pharisees today. It's probably because Bruce sat over here. He's normally over here, but now he's over here. <laughs> I'm going to hear about that later. So he's going to shut down the Pharisees and at the same time teach people a spiritual truth. Is that just not our Lord? And so I asked you this morning, what's the denarius in your pocket? What's the thing that you're carrying around? I'm not talking about a phone or a wallet or keys. But what's something that you've made, that you've rendered to, that was never meant to be rendered to? Your job, your position, your ego, your pride. What are you rendering to that is rightly to be given to God? And so then the Sadducees walk up, and now it's their turn to talk to Jesus, and, and we've made the joke. They're sad, you see, because they did not believe in a resurrection. Uh, we've, it, every time you'll see that, and be like, oh, what did they believe? Well, they're sad, you see, okay? They don't believe in the... It's funny, but it, it really does help. And so they ask a question about the resurrection, and it's probably a really popular question that they've used to criticize other people's beliefs, right? It's kind of like when uh, people come to us as Christians and say, uh, God can do anything, right? Yep, as long as it's not against his own will. So technically he can't do everything because he can't go against his own nature. Well, can God create a rock that he can't lift? To which I say, you are a moron. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm not interested in talking about fabled things of if God could make a rock that he can't lift. What I do know is what God has done and what he is doing. And so this is this little uh, uh, situation with one wife, seven brothers. It's called a leveret marriage. This is in Deuteronomy. You can find uh, in the Old Testament that if a brother did die, it was, it was the next brother up. It was his responsibility. Think about that, brothers if you like your sister-in-law or not, that if we still lived in the time of Israel, it might be your responsibility to father children with your sister-in-law. Be like, me and my brother have totally different taste in women. 
but it was their responsibility to father children because we understand that the inheritance would pass through families and, and numbers talks about that we don't want, they never want an inheritance to change tribes or family. And so it was your responsibility to do that. And so they puff up this impossible situation. Well, what if there's seven brothers and nobody has kids? And then at the very end, in the resurrection, well, whose wife is she going to be? She's been married to all seven. And that's what Jesus says is you're wrong. And why are they wrong? Because they don't know the scriptures and they don't know the power of God. And I think there's a lot of times that we ask questions and we're wrong for the exact same reasons. See, Jesus is saying the answer to your question has always been available to you. Lean into the scriptures and it will reveal to you the power of God. That if they truly knew the power of God, they would know that he is able to raise people from the dead. So their idea of denying the resurrection, they were in denial. That they didn't want their worldview to line up with what reality was. And if they knew the scriptures... And think they only had the Old Testament this time. If they knew the scriptures, they would know that God will raise the dead. And so the very thing that the crowd is astonished about, his teaching, that's always been available to him, he says, because if you knew the power of God or if you knew the scriptures. So even going back to what Andy said, go back to the original things. What was it? Worship, prayer, his word. Why? Because the answers that we need for our faith, everything that pertains to life and godliness, God has provided for us. But a lot of times, this is how we live our faith. And we ask a whole lot of questions, and we wonder why God is not speaking to us. Because we want this big mountaintop moment where God spoke to Moses, and why can't he do the same thing for me? You know there was two and a half million Jews Israelites that were following Moses who did not have the mountaintop moment with God. Why do you think you're a Moses and not just some dude living in the tribe in Israel? I'm a dude living in a tribe in Israel. I'm not having mountaintop moments. If God is speaking to you audibly, I will take you to the hospital. We'll get a CAT scan. He speaks through his word. But so many times we leave this closed and we struggle with the questions that we have. And I think questions are good. I, a whole degree I have is, is trying to answer those questions. So lean into, uh, lean into those that have been there, that have asked those questions. That, that's why life groups are so important because we want to wrestle through these things in a community of faith. The questions that you have, you're not the only one that's ever had that. All of us have struggled through those, and it's good to hear how do we walk through those. And so, for us, we need to lean into the power of God and the Word of God. And we find ourselves the last Sunday of the month, and it's communion. And we do communion, why? Because Jesus called and commanded us. We can look in the Word and find that. And it's just juice and bread, gluten-free for those that need that, just so you know. Is there power in that? No, you can go to Walmart and get it. We did this morning. It's a symbolism of the power of the blood of Jesus. And so we do this because we believe in the power of Scripture and we believe in the power of the blood of Jesus. This is what our faith is all about. It has never changed. It has never been different 
from the time of Jesus to the early church to even now, it's always been about Jesus and what he has done, what he has said, and what he is continuing to do in and through our lives. 